2: The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's Friends and Family Sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details.
1: The following episode contains descriptions of starvation, murder, and cannibalism that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13.
0: November 14th, 1846. The snow was deeper than any William Eddy had ever experienced. The mere act of walking through it was exhausting.
1: Eddy held the rifle close to his chest. He hoped he could find something worth hunting in these barren woods. So far, it had been slim pickings. A fox here, an owl there. Nothing substantial enough to revive his family's strength.
0: Eddie stopped. Just ahead of him, a grizzly bear was rooting through the snow. He couldn't believe his luck. Most bears had gone into hibernation by now. He raised the rifle and leveled it at the big furry back.
1: The bear was at the very limits of his range. Even if he hit it, the lead ball wouldn't do much more than anger it. Almost unconsciously, Eddie popped a spare bullet into his mouth, ready to load the moment he fired.
0: His first shot glanced off the bear's back and the creature wheeled on him Eddie ducked behind a tree, hurriedly reloading the weapon. He could hear it charging toward him through the snow. He poured more powder into the rifle and rammed the second ball down the barrel.
1: As the bear rounded the tree, Eddie fired his second shot right into its chest at point-blank range.
0: Eddie cast aside the rifle and picked up a large stick off the ground, wasting no time He started beating the bear about the head with it to ensure it was dead.
1: Satisfied, Eddie picked up his weapon and began to drag the massive carcass back to camp. For a while, at least, this little victory would keep his friends and family alive.
0: Welcome to Survival, a Parcast Original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco.
1: And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival into the search bar.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
0: This is our second episode on the Donner Party, a group of California-bound emigrants who got trapped on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains during the winter of 1846.
1: Unable to pass over the mountains in the snow, They set up two camps, one by Truckee Lake and another by Alder Creek. With only a meager group of cattle and oxen left, they knew that if they didn't get out of the canyon soon, they would all starve to death.
0: In May of 1846, the Donner-Reed Party set out west, spurned by ambitions of manifest destiny and a shared dream of settling in California. Their leaders, George Donner and James Reed, followed a guidebook written by Lansford Hastings entitled, The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. Hastings described a shortcut, which he claimed would have saved them around 400 miles compared to the usual route to California.
1: Ignoring warnings against taking the untested route, Reed and Donner tried their luck at this shortcut. In the end, it proved to be a treacherous and poorly thought out route. By the time they rejoined the proper emigrant trail in September of 1846, they had lost a month to backtracking and delays.
0: Shortly afterward, James Reed quarreled with and killed another man, which caused him to be banished from the group. He set off towards California with a single companion, hoping to rejoin his family once they got there.
1: James Reed and Walter Heron had a very rough time getting through the mountains. They ran out of food early on, and on more than one occasion, Heron suggested shooting and eating Reed's horse, Glaucus. Reed refused to consider this idea.
0: On October 28th, the two starved and exhausted men stumbled into Sutter's Fort in California. As soon as they arrived, it started raining heavily.
1: That night, they were reunited with William Big Bill McCutcheon, a member of the Donner Party who had gone ahead a month earlier for supplies, before falling too ill to leave. Also at Sutter's Fort was Edwin Bryant, a former traveling companion of his, who had sent letters warning the Donner Party not to take Hastings' cutoff.
0: As they sat down over dinner, Bryant informed Reed that while they were on the road, President James K. Polk had declared war on Mexico. The sparsely populated territory of California was on the verge of becoming an American colony, but Mexico wasn't going to give it up so easily. A local U.S. Army commander and former explorer, John Fremont, was looking for volunteers to take California for the United States. Due to his military background, Reed was offered a captain's post in one of the volunteer regiments.
1: Though he longed to do his duty as an American citizen, Reed refused the commission. The lack of news from his family troubled him. Most other settlers had reached Sutter's Fort by now. If the Donner party was delayed any longer, he feared they would be snowed in. He told the army recruiters that he had to rescue his family first, but agreed to serve as a lieutenant in the war upon his return.
0: As Reed was recovering in Sutter's Fort, his former traveling companions were experiencing the worst winter of their lives.
1: The Donner Party had been split up into two camps. The larger camp was at Truckee Lake, where 59 individuals were hunkered down in four cabins.
0: Margaret Reed, who had been looking after their family since her husband James's exile, had moved into a cabin with the Graves
1: family. The Breen family had a cabin of their own, as well as the Murphys and the Keysburgs. The smaller families, such as William Eddy and his wife, moved in wherever they could find extra room.
0: Five miles to the northeast, another group of 22 men, women, and children had made camp along Alder Creek. Among them were George Donner, along with his wife, children, and brother Jacob. Due to what seemed like a minor hand injury, George had not managed to complete their log cabins before the snowfall became too heavy to work in and had been forced to take shelter in three hastily constructed canvas tents.
1: Both camps were set up by the evening of November 3rd when a massive storm descended on the Sierras. It snowed for eight days straight.
0: As they hid from the snowfall, the emigrants faced some difficult decisions. Each family that still had livestock, particularly the Breen's and the Graveses, who had half a dozen oxen each, faced the question of whether they should butcher their whole herd right away, or try and work through them one at a time to prevent the meat from spoiling.
1: To complicate the matter, the heads of the less lucky families, like Margaret Reed and William Eddy, attempted to buy oxen from their neighbors. The Reeds could afford to buy two oxen from both the Breen's and the Graves's, but Eddie didn't have as much money to spare. He wound up purchasing the starved corpse of an ox off Franklin Graves for $25.
0: Once the livestock had been distributed, they set about slaughtering most of them.
1: Slaughtering the oxen was cumbersome work. The emigrants either had to shoot them, which risked the bullet ricocheting off the animal's skull, or hold them by the horns as someone slit their throat.
0: Once the livestock were dead, they had to be butchered and stored. Keeping the meat from rotting wasn't difficult. They simply buried the fresh cuts in the snowbanks.
1: Under the circumstances, they used every part of the oxen they could, feeding whatever meager offal they had left to the dogs.
0: As the Donner Party was butchering their animals and preparing to settle down in early November, James Reed had finally recovered enough of his energy to leave Sutter's fort. Determined to rejoin his family, he turned back east and made for the Sierras.
1: He was accompanied by Big Bill McCutcheon, who was finally free of his illness and determined to rejoin his wife, Amanda, and daughter, Harriet.
0: John Sutter had helpfully provided them with 30 horses, a mule, plenty of flour, and a large cut of beef for their journey. Two more of Sutter's Native American Miwok employees came with them to manage the horses.
1: They faced heavy rain and sleet as they went. Three days into their trek, the snow had risen by over two feet. It became increasingly difficult to soldier onward. As the temperature dropped, the Miwoks abandoned them, leaving Reed and McCutcheon to manage 30 horses on their own
0: overwhelmed, they released all but nine of the horses and attempted to forge ahead through the snow.
1: On their way, they encountered a tent containing two near-starving settlers, who Reed referred to in his journal as Mr. and Mrs. Curtis. In return for some flour and beef, Mr. Curtis offered Reed and McCutcheon some of the meal they had been cooking when the men arrived, a piece of their family dog.
0: The weather became exceedingly harsh as Reed and McCutcheon continued to fight their way east. Climbing uphill through nine feet of snow, dragging nine horses behind them, Reed and McCutcheon grew exhausted one day after leaving the Curtis' shelter. They finally conceded that the weather was too strong for the both of them.
1: As the snowfall intensified, the men turned back west. They couldn't have known it but they may have been only 10 or 12 miles from reaching their families at Truckee Lake.
0: When he returned to Sutter's fort, Reed described their aborted mission to John Sutter. Sutter told him that there were not enough able-bodied men to form a suitable relief party to help them due to the ongoing war with Mexico.
1: Sutter then asked Reed how much livestock the rest of the party had with them. Reed later wrote, Sutter made an estimate and stated that if the emigrants would kill the cattle and place the meat in the snow for preservation, there was no fear of starvation until relief could reach them.
0: Reassured, Reed rode out to San Francisco, where his post in the Mexican-American War awaited. If the war ended soon, maybe he'd be able to gather the rescue party he needed.
1: As James Reed rode west, His wife, Margaret, prepared to hunker down for the winter and wait for rescue in the Truckee Lake camp. She could not risk bringing her children out into the cold. But not all of the settlers had given up hope of escape.
0: The 57-year-old Franklin Graves had no intention of getting stuck there all winter. They had no reason to expect a rescue party, so they had to get help themselves. The day the snow stopped on November 12th, he set about rallying a party to scale the mountain.
1: Later that day, Franklin Graves set off for the mountain with 12 to 15 individuals, all men, save for Franklin's two daughters. They were guided by Charles Stanton and the two Miwoks, Luis and Salvador.
0: The expedition was doomed from the start. When the team reached the west end of Truckee Lake, they encountered banks of snow rising almost 10 feet high. Every step sank deep into the snow, making forging forward exhausting and inefficient. Soon, they could go no further. Frustrated, they turned back.
1: When Franklin arrived back at Truckee Lake at midnight, he had no intention of admitting defeat. He only needed to look at the meager food stores to know they wouldn't last the winter.
0: During the eight days of snowfall, the families had worked their way through almost all of the meat the cattle and oxen had provided them. Some men had attempted to fish in Truckee Lake, but had little success. Eventually, the river had frozen too solid to break through the ice.
1: William Eddy borrowed a rifle from William Foster and set about hunting for the group. He was a talented marksman, but there were very few animals to be found in the surrounding wilderness.
0: On November 14th, Eddie and Foster surprised the camp by dragging a grizzly bear carcass in from the surrounding mountainside. They butchered it and distributed the meat between the families.
1: Female grizzly bears can weigh up to 400 pounds and males can weigh up to 600. But even 600 pounds of meat wouldn't go far when divided between 81 hungry people. Within days, the grizzly carcass had been picked clean.
0: On November 21st, Franklin Graves' group made another attempt at scaling the mountain. Two days later, they returned, defeated.
1: Another heavy snowfall hit on November 26th, preempting another escape attempt but Franklin Graves was still determined to break free of their mountainous prison. He had grown up in Vermont, so he was used to inhospitable winters. He set about making snowshoes, enlisting the help of Charles Stanton and William Foster.
0: Stanton and Foster didn't know how to make snowshoes, but they could help him gather the necessary materials. Over the next few days, they hunted through the snow, gathering the wooden oxbows from the yokes of their fallen cattle.
1: The bows formed the frames of these snowshoes, while Franklin's daughters, Sarah Fosdick and Mary Ann Graves, cut strips of rawhide to weave in between the frames. Foraging for snowshoe materials thoroughly occupied many of the settlers as December began.
0: On December 9th, Charles Stanton wrote a note to the Donner family. The storm prevented us from getting over the mountains. We are now getting snowshoes ready to go on foot. I should like to get your pocket compass as the snow is so very deep and in the event of a storm, it would be invaluable. The mules are all strayed off. If any should come round your camp, let some of our company know it the first opportunity.
1: He received no reply from the Donner camp. But by this point, Franklin Graves had made enough snowshoes for a reasonably sized foray into the mountain. They would have to go with or without the Donner's help.
0: Franklin went from cabin to cabin, gathering able-bodied men and women for a final desperate attempt to break through the Sierra Nevada. By the morning of December 16th, he had gathered 16 willing volunteers. They only had 14 sets of snowshoes between them, but it would have to do. It was better to have as many helping hands as possible. This was their last hope at surviving the winter.
1: When we return, Franklin Graves leads a seemingly suicidal attempt
2: to escape their wintry prison. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear
1: Now, back to the story.
0: By December 16th, Franklin Graves had found 16 individuals to follow him out of the valley. In all, the party numbered 10 men, five women, and two boys. This included Franklin Graves, his son-in-law and two eldest daughters, William Eddy, William Foster, the Irish bachelor, Patrick Dolan, and a Mexican cattle hand named Antonio. They were guided by the three men who had been through the pass before, Charles Stanton and the two Native Americans, Luis and Salvador.
1: For food, the group brought a few strips of dried beef. Eddie still had Foster's rifle and was ready to hunt to ensure they'd have the strength to keep going.
0: The Snowshoe Party would later be dubbed the Forlorn Hope by historians. This term most often refers to a detachment of soldiers leading an offensive with the expectation of high casualties.
1: It was sunny the day the Forlorn Hope set off from the lake camp. The snow was thick, but Franklin Graves' snowshoes were effective in keeping the group from sinking into it. Halfway across Truckee Lake, two of them turned around. Charles Berger and 10-year-old William Murphy didn't have snowshoes and realized they couldn't keep pace with the others.
0: On the second day, December 17th, they reached the east face of the pass. Luis and Salvador led the party with the women directly behind them and the men bringing up the rear. Around midday, they reached the mountain wall and started the arduous climb.
1: The snow grew deeper as they ascended. Even with Graves' snowshoes, they sank into the snow with every step. The bright sun reflected off the snow in front of them, forcing them to squint as they went. Their eyes began to ache with the early signs of snow blindness.
0: Everyone in the party had started their journey in good health, but a month of rationed food had taken a dramatic toll on their stamina. The thin mountain air forced the party to take frequent stops to rest.
1: The members of the Forlorn Hope had dressed themselves well when they set off and managed to stay remarkably dry during their first ascent on December 17th. However, by protecting themselves against hypothermia, they put themselves at risk for another equally deadly enemy, hyperthermia. Because of their heavy winter clothing, They were just as likely to overheat as to freeze during the strenuous climb.
0: All 15 remaining members of the Forlorn Hope reached the top of the pass by late afternoon. Exhausted, they set up camp for the night.
1: Snowfall was intermittent as they made their way across the Sierra Nevada. Over the next couple of days, Charles Stanton fell further and further behind, often stumbling into camp hours after the others. The group was growing concerned, as Charles was the only one of them who had crossed the mountains in both directions. If they lost him, they would have to rely on the two Native Americans for guidance, and they did not speak much English.
0: To make matters worse, Stanton was starting to suffer from snow blindness, making it harder and harder for him to follow the footsteps of the others.
1: On the morning of December 20th, Stanton didn't bother rising from their makeshift campground.
0: As the others prepared to leave, Mary Ann Graves saw him sitting nearby, calmly puffing on his pipe. She approached him and asked if he was coming with them. Yes, he replied, I am coming soon.
1: Mary Ann set off with the others, leaving Stanton to follow at his own pace.
0: Stanton never caught up with them.
1: As the Snowshoe Group made their way along the Sierra Nevada, Patrick Breen continued his daily journal back by the lake. News traveled slowly between Truckee Lake and the Donner family's camp at Alder Creek. Milt Elliott had left for the Donners several days ago to check on them, and Breen hadn't heard a single word from him since.
0: When he arrived at the Donners' camp, Milt made a gruesome discovery. Jacob Donner was dead. He had never shaken the horrible feeling of hopelessness. As the snow had set in, he ignored his family's attempts to feed him. One day, he had gone to the table in the center of his tent bowed his head, as if in prayer, and sat still until he died.
1: Eliza Donner would later write of her uncle, not even the needs of his family could rouse him to action. He was utterly dejected and made no effort, but tranquility awaited him in death.
0: The family was shaken by this tragedy, George Donner most of all, He watched as his able-bodied family members dragged his brother's body out of the tent into the snow, unable to assist them due to his hand injury, which had become infected.
1: At around the same time, a group of three single men living nearby died of starvation. As he lay weakly on the floor of his cabin, Joseph Reinhardt called to Doris Wolfinger, a woman who had been widowed earlier in the journey. When she came over, he confessed to the murder of her husband during their desert trek, a crime he had blamed on Paiute raiders. Then, finally free of his guilt, he died.
0: As the Alder Creek camp coped with their losses, the forlorn hope was struck by a powerful blizzard. The 14 remaining men and women could barely see anything in front of them. Without Stanton, they relied exclusively on Luis and Salvador to guide them, but the two Miwoks were unable to make out any landmarks through the white curtain surrounding the group.
1: They argued amongst themselves, bringing the journey to a halt. They were almost out of food and had no idea which direction was west. The foot and hoof prints they had been following up until this point had vanished beneath the snow.
0: Some argued they should return to their families. Marianne Graves vehemently opposed this, saying she would rather die than watch her brother and sister starve to death at the
1: lake. Eventually, the group had no choice but to press on. That same afternoon, without any tracks to guide them, they made a tragic mistake.
0: A low ridge rose above them. Fearing it led only higher into the mountains, they skirted it to the left and went downhill. If they had climbed this ridge, they would have found themselves back on the established emigrant road and well on their way to Sutter's Fort. By following the deceptive path downhill, they led themselves into yet another canyon, a funnel for the blizzard they were caught in.
1: Starvation struck the forlorn hope on the night of December 21st. That night, as his companions went without food, William Eddy found a parcel among his supplies. It was a half pound of bear meat, with a note from his wife simply saying, Your own dear Eleanor. This morsel kept Eddy going, a tangible reminder of the wife and child he left by the lake.
0: But by the morning of December 23rd, the party was completely out of food. Hunger and exhaustion weighed on them as they marched with increasing clumsiness downhill. Their strength flagged, all of them sweating and freezing at the same time.
1: A horrible discussion began. With no end in sight, how would they sustain themselves for the rest of their journey to Sutter's Fort? Hunger gnawed at them all, and as far as they knew, They were the only hope for their family and friends stuck at the lake. If none of them lived through the journey, everyone would die.
0: Patrick Dolan finally spoke up. The men should cast lots and whoever lost would sacrifice himself to provide meat for the others.
1: The group fiercely debated this morbid suggestion. While they all found the idea horrifying, they slowly resigned themselves to its grim practicality. They were starving and had no reason to expect another food source to appear.
0: They tore off five strips of paper, one for each of the men in the party, besides Luis and Salvador, who had not been part of the discussion. The fifth strip was longer than the others and would indicate which of the men would be killed.
1: The men drew one by one. When they compared, the fatal long strip was in the hands of Patrick Dolan, the same man who had suggested the idea in the first place.
0: But before he could process what had just happened, the other men surrounded Dolan, preventing him from running. An unspoken question passed between them. Who would be the executioner? After an interminable moment of staring at each other, the men realized murder was still murder. They could not kill one of their own for food.
1: Turning back to the path, Eddie grimly pointed out that one of them was going to die soon anyway.
0: On the morning of Christmas Eve, the forlorn Hope was struck with an intensely cold rain, soaking through their threadbare clothing. With some difficulty, They built a smoky fire in a snowbank beneath some trees. Once they succeeded, they realized the fire had been built over a snowy stream.
1: The fire melted through the snow, its embers plummeting into the river below. Where they had built the fire, there was now just a hole in the ice looking down into freezing waters. It only grew colder as the day wore on. By dusk, Franklin Graves was shaking heavily. Both Patrick Dolan and the 12-year-old Lemuel Murphy had started crying out in despair, most likely suffering from a unique blend of shock, hypothermia, and desperate gnawing hunger.
0: That night, they managed to build another fire with cotton from Harriet Pike's cloak and sparks from the flintlock rifle Eddie carried. It was a welcome sight. Antonio, the Mexican cattle drover, crawled over to the fire pit and lay down in its
1: warmth. A few hours later, his hand fell into the fire pit and he did not remove it. He was past caring.
0: Later that night, Franklin Graves stopped shivering, his breathing gradually becoming more shallow. Eddie told him that he was dying. Franklin didn't seem to care. He called Sarah Fosdick and Mary Ann Graves over to his side. The two women tried to rub warmth into his limbs, but he made no effort to assist them.
1: Franklin told his two daughters that the life of the rest of their family depended on their survival. He told them to do whatever they had to do to survive and instructed them to eat his corpse once he died.
0: By 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve, Franklin Graves was dead. The fire had gone out, and it seemed like the 12 remaining settlers were going to freeze to death if they didn't do something soon.
1: William Eddy had an idea, an old frontier trick he had just remembered. He suggested everyone lie in a circle with their feet toward the middle. Then he would completely cover them with their blankets, forming a small, low tent. This method trapped the body heat of the party under the blankets, warming them, and protecting them from the snow.
0: The group agreed, and Eddie set about erecting this low tent. They all huddled in the circle, temporarily safe from the harsh winds. But with this temporary relief from the cold came a greater awareness of their collective hunger. Franklin Graves' final words hung over the forlorn hope ominously, a promise of relief that they could not ignore forever.
1: When they awoke at sunrise on Christmas Day, Patrick Dolan was gibbering madly. He started to thrash and yell, and suddenly he tried to crawl out into the blizzard.
0: Eddie attempted to wrestle him back under the blankets, but Dolan slipped free, crawling out of the shelter. As he went, he began stripping his clothes off and charging off into the cold half naked.
1: Dolan is an early example of what forensic pathologists call paradoxical undressing. During the early stages of hypothermia, blood vessels shut off to conserve warmth in the core of the body, causing numbness in all extremities. In the final stages of hypothermia, The vessels open back up, causing an intense feeling of heat to course throughout the body, even as the victim freezes. No doubt Dolan had just reached this stage of hypothermia.
0: Finally, Dolan returned to the rest of the group and slid back under the coverlets. He was dead by late afternoon.
1: Their campsite became known as the Camp of Death. Here, the Forlorn Hope spent Christmas Day starving while the bodies of their companions lay nearby.
0: Christmas Day for the Truckee Lake camp was a gloomy affair. For the last few days, Margaret Reed had been serving her children a glue-like brew made from boiled ox hides. It was nutritious enough to keep them going, but tasted horrible.
1: Christmas dinner in the Reed half of the cabin was a surprise for all of the children. Margaret had been saving a few dried apples, a teacup full of white beans, a little bit of rice, two square inches of bacon, and some tripe left over from the slaughtered oxen. It wasn't much, but compared to the boiled ox hides they had been eating, it was a veritable feast.
0: In the Breen cabin, the exhausted Patrick Breen recorded extremely difficult to find wood. Uttered our prayers to God this Christmas morning. The prospect is appalling, but we trust in him.
1: In their cabin, Levina Murphy and Eleanor Eddy boiled bones for broth. And once the broth was served, they boiled the bones again and again until they were soft enough to be eaten whole.
0: Five miles to the Northeast at Alder Creek, the Donners ate bones for Christmas dinner as well. George Donner did very little to help his family on Christmas the infection from his cut hand had spread halfway up his right arm. The man who had been elected to lead the wagon train was now virtually an invalid.
1: Back in the camp of death, the men dragged Patrick Dolan's body over to where they had laid the frozen remains of Franklin Graves and Antonio.
0: Though they did not speak openly about it, the remaining members of the Forlorn Hope Had decided what they were going to do about their starvation. They had come to the unconscious agreement that they would have to eat their deceased companions.
1: On December 26th, growing mad with hunger, the 12 year old Lemuel Murphy thrashed wildly, attempting to escape the tent. He grabbed at the other's arms and bit at them, crying, Give me my bone! Due to his size, he was easily restrained. The others forced him into the center of the tent between their feet. His sister, Sarah Foster, held his head in her lap throughout the night, trying to comfort him.
0: At around 2 a.m., Lemuel Murphy stopped breathing. They dragged him out of the tent and set him by the other three bodies.
1: There were now only 10 members of the Forlorn Hope left.
0: When we return, The forlorn hope finally makes use of their new food supply. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, back to the story.
1: December 27th, 1846. Eleven days after they set off to bring back help, The forlorn hope was down to 10 individuals, five men and five women. Their guide, Charles Stanton, had been lost in the snow. Four others, Patrick Dolan, Antonio, Lemuel Murphy, and their leader, Franklin Graves, had died in the last three days.
0: By the time the sun rose that morning, most of the survivors were ready to eat the dead.
1: First, they had to start a fire. William Eddy set out using another old woodsman's trick to get the fire lit. He poured some black powder onto the tinder with hopes that he could force the damp wood to ignite.
0: The gunpowder ignited more strongly than Eddy expected, burning his face and hands. Finally, after gathering enough dry tinder, they were able to get a proper fire going.
1: When they realized what their white companions were planning on doing, Luis and Salvador moved away from the camp and made their own fire. The practice of cannibalism was unspeakably disgusting to them.
0: When the Native Americans turned their backs on them, the three men, Jay Fosdick, William Eddy, and William Foster set about butchering the four bodies. There was not much meat to be found on the starved corpses, but that did not deter the hungry survivors.
1: They ate in separate groups so that no one would have to eat their family or watch someone eat their family.
0: An alarming fact casts this gruesome meal into a different light. They had only gone six days without food. This raises the question, why were they so quick to turn to cannibalism when they possibly had weeks before they were in danger of starvation?
1: The answer is twofold. First, they were burning calories at an alarming rate while trudging through the snow. With the constant hunger and exhaustion, it certainly must have felt like they were starving to death. And second, they likely didn't know it was hypothermia, not starvation, that killed their five companions.
0: After their initial meal, they had to make sure that the rest of the meat was portable and wouldn't go bad as they continued making their way towards California. So they cut the remaining pieces of their companions into thin strips and stretched them beside the fire, close enough to dry, but not close enough to cook. It was a painstaking process that they worked at for two days.
1: They were ready to travel again on the morning of December 29th. They loaded the dried meat into their packs, strapped on their snowshoes, and resumed their journey.
0: They calculated they had about four days worth of human meat in their packs.
1: On the morning of January 1st, the surviving members of the Forlorn Hope made it out of the valley that had trapped them. Even as they escaped the snow, they did not feel like rejoicing. Their stores of meat were once again diminished. Some of them resorted to eating the strips of rawhide that held their snowshoes together.
0: Jay Fostic had been lagging behind the rest of them, his energy flagging from the unrelenting pace. Eddie fell in step beside him, encouraging him to keep going.
1: That evening, over the campfire, William Foster suggested they kill Luis and Salvador for food. The Native Americans were growing weaker by the day, refusing to eat the dead. Eating the two Miwoks would be preferable to waiting for Jay to starve or for one of the women to collapse.
0: Eddie argued against this, and after a tense discussion, the group fell into silence.
1: When they awoke the next morning, both Luis and Salvador were gone. It was suspected that Eddie warned them that they were in danger, but it's just as possible that they read the body language of their white companions and fled.
0: At this same time, many of the party trapped in the lake camp were growing desperate. On January 4th, Margaret Reed prepared to make her own trip through the mountains. Before she left, they ate Cash, the last of the Reed family dogs.
1: Virginia Reed later wrote her cousin, Mary, about this traumatic incident. We had to kill little Cash the dog and eat him. We ate his head and feet and hide and everything about him. Oh, my dear cousin, you don't know what trouble is.
0: After the tragic final meal, Margaret took her daughter, Virginia, her cook Eliza Williams, and Milt Elliott on an expedition through the mountains. Eliza turned back early, intimidated by the steep mountain climb looming ahead of them.
1: At the same time, the remnants of the Forlorn Hope were growing hungry. Jay Fosdick lagged even further behind the others. If he didn't get food soon, they realized, he would almost certainly die.
0: William Eddy and Mary Ann Graves went out ahead of the other six, hoping they would find some animals to hunt now that the snow was behind them.
1: Hours later, Eddie and Marianne were delighted to find deer tracks in the cold earth. They followed these until they found the animal that made them.
0: The deer was only about 80 yards ahead of them. Eddie raised the rifle. The gun wavered and dropped to his side. He was too weak to aim the heavy weapon.
1: But with Marianne's encouragement, he lifted the rifle again, this time aiming slightly above the deer so that his tired arms would drop the rifle to the proper elevation when he pulled the trigger. With this in mind, he squeezed and prayed.
0: The weapon fired and the deer leapt in response. It bounded off, wounded but still alive. Eddie and Marianne ran after it, dropping the useless rifle. Moments later, they caught up with the crippled animal. Eddie slid its throat. They were so famished that they drank the fresh blood that gushed from the animal's neck.
1: Behind them, Jay had collapsed from exhaustion when he heard the shot. Harriet Pike, Amanda McCutcheon, William, and Sarah Foster ran forward to catch up with their hunting party, but Jay and Sarah Fosdick remained behind.
0: Jay couldn't even stand As the day turned into night, he lay on the forest floor, his breathing growing shallower and shallower. At around midnight, he died. The next morning, January 6th, Sarah stood and followed the others. She encountered the Fosters and her sister, Marianne, who had doubled back to find her.
1: When they found out Jay had died, the Fosters asked Sarah if they could eat him. Sarah replied distantly, You cannot hurt him now, and walked on ahead.
0: The seven remaining members of the Forlorn Hope gathered by the fire that night. Sarah ate what remained of the deer, and the others ate what remained of her husband.
1: The next morning, they set off again, their strength momentarily returned. The seven of them, five women and two men, were a sorry sight. By this point, their clothing had been worn ragged and barely hung together, exposing their skeletal frames. Their shoes were long gone and they walked barefoot through the undergrowth.
0: On January 8th, Milt Elliott, Margaret and Virginia Reed stumbled back into the lake camp. The snow was too high to make any progress up the mountainside.
1: Things were grim back on Truckee Lake Families were growing weaker. Patrick Breen described how the snowbanks made life increasingly difficult for them. Quote, snow higher than the shanty. It must be 13 feet deep. Cannot get wood this morning. It is a dreadful sight for us to look upon.
0: Between the camps at Truckee Lake and Alder Creek, six members of the company had died and the threat of starvation loomed constantly over those who still lived. They were running out of ox hides to eat, and bedbugs ravaged them whenever they tried to sleep.
1: The stranded families were running out of time. Their only hope of rescue was the seven emaciated men and women trudging their way above the American River.
0: By some accounts, William Foster was becoming deranged as the forlorn hope soldiered on. According to Eddie, Foster approached him privately and proposed killing Amanda McCutcheon for food. Eddie protested, pointing out that McCutcheon was a mother. Foster then proposed killing Sarah Fosdick and Marianne, both of whom were childless. Eddie rejected this idea vehemently.
1: Soon after, they started to see bloody footprints in the dirt ahead of them. Following them, They discovered Luis and Salvador, the two Native American Miwok guides who had abandoned them several days prior.
0: According to John Sutter's version of events, the two Miwoks were gathering acorns by a small stream. Some others claim they were merely lying by the stream, resting. They had been living on nuts, roots, or grubs for the last several weeks, having refused to eat human flesh they were even more emaciated than their former companions.
1: The seven white men and women walked past Luis and Salvador, continuing up the trail. Then Foster took the rifle from Eddie and walked back.
0: The survivors heard two gunshots back by the creek, one following the other.
1: After the deed was done, the group headed back to where the Miwoks lay. They stripped the flesh from their bones. They dried what they could and ate the organs. The next day, it started raining.
0: The seven survivors soldiered on, leaving the bones and severed heads of Luis and Salvador behind them.
1: Some days later, no one knows precisely how long, they saw their first sign of civilization, a Native American village. The Maidu tribe were astonished to see seven skeletal figures stagger toward their village pleading for help.
0: Their children cried in horror and hid their eyes from these ghastly creatures. The Maidu led the seven survivors into their huts and served them cakes made from acorn mush.
1: Despite the welcome sustenance, some in the party found the acorn food inedible. William Eddy wound up brewing tea from fresh grass instead, but the others managed to swallow enough food to keep themselves going.
0: Maidu guides led them westward, from village to village, following their own trails. They had almost reached the edges of the Sacramento Valley, when most of their group found themselves unable to walk at all.
1: On January 17th, Sarah Fosdick found herself unable to continue. Like the others, her feet were swollen and bleeding. She had developed bleeding gums from scurvy, yellowed skin from jaundice, and intestinal bleeding. Her body had reached its absolute limit.
0: Unable to go any further, Sarah sat down by the trail. Mary Ann, Sarah Foster, William Foster, and Harriet Pike joined her. They did not have the strength to take another step and could not even make camp. The six of them were ready to die, but William Eddy kept going, bribing his Maidu guide with the last of his tobacco. The guide took it and began carrying Eddie.
1: On the afternoon of January 17th, Eddie and his Maidu guide reached a ranch owned by a man named William Johnson. One of Johnson's house guests, the 15-year-old Harriet Ritchie, spotted the two figures coming up from the Bear River toward the cabins.
0: Eddie was unable to walk, forcing his Maidu guide to carry him. To Richie's eyes, he barely looked human. When he got up to the door, he looked up into her eyes and said in a voice only a little louder than a whisper, bread.
1: They took Eddie inside and fed him. When he told them of his companions just up the road, they gathered all the food they could and followed Eddie's bloody footprints back up the trail to where his companions lay.
0: They found them at around midnight so famished they could not even sit up. Their digestive systems had shrunk so much that even modest portions made them wretch. Still, they begged for more.
1: On the morning of January 18th, all seven survivors were brought back to Johnson's ranch where they were given food, fresh clothing, and blankets.
0: As these wretched travelers ate, they slowly recovered their ability to speak. Finally, they were able to tell the Johnsons about their families still trapped by Truckee Lake.
1: The Forlorn Hope may have successfully reached civilization, but there were still almost 60 people trapped in the snow to the east. And like the Forlorn Hope, those desperate, starving men and women were beginning to look at their neighbors with hungry eyes. Thanks for listening to Survival. Next week, the survivors of the Forlorn Hope and James Reed attempt to rally rescue parties to save their friends and families.
0: You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Survival for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Survival is written by Robert Teamstra and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.